Hello and welcome to episode five of Fitter and Faster. My name is Emma Kate LeBerry, your host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. In today's show, we chat with coach Ryan Bolton. Ryan was a member of the very first US triathlon team who raced back in the Sydney Olympics in 2000 when triathlon was included in the games for the very first time. Since then, he's been a pretty busy guy. Of course, he had a successful short course career. He later dabbled in long course racing and then went back to school to get his degree in human nutrition. So he's in that enviable position of having academic knowledge combined with 25 years plus experience in the field of training and racing. Interestingly, Ryan has his feet in two different coaching worlds. He has an elite group of runners as well as a triathlon team which features age groupers and pros, including the likes of Ben Hoffman, Sam Long and Heather Jackson. Ryan is a talented triathlon coach, but especially so when it comes to running. And he talks about this and how some of the work he's done with his elite runners has helped inform and influence the running work he does with his triathletes and how that's helped them up their running game. Okay, here's our conversation with Ryan Bolton. Hey, so welcome coach Ryan Bolton. Thank you for joining us on Fitter and Faster. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for uh, having me here. Yay. So, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to coaching and, uh, yeah, a a one minute elevator talk, if you like to kick us off. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, I grew, I grew up, uh, as a runner and a swimmer and I guess I rode bikes as well. And, um, and then, you know, I ran in college, but as a junior, I actually raced a couple of years as a triathlete in Manchester, England in what, 90, 93. Mm. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, Problem was, is I was I was in college at the time running as well. So I came back to college uh, about two weeks after the World Championships. I was second at the World Championships, and uh, my college coaches said, "Hey, we're we're paying you to be a runner, not to be a triathlete. So give up that whole silly, you know, swimming and biking stuff, or your scholarship's going away." So I actually, oh. yeah. So from '93 to '96, I didn't touch triathlon, um, but at the in '96 when they actually announced that triathlon was going to be an Olympic sport. And I kind of always knew I was going to get back into it. And I was graduating from college. So um, I dove kind of head first right back into the scene. And uh, it, it uh, I, I was contacted actually by Dan Ampfield, if you know Dan Ampfield, yeah. of course, of Twitch fame and Quintana Roo. And he basically called me and he said, hey, I called USA Triathlon today. And they asked me, who is going to be on the Olympic team in 2000 that no one knows about? And they gave me your name. And he was like, so I'm calling you. And he actually very graciously uh, invited me to come to uh, San Diego where he lived and, uh, and where Quintana Roo was based at the time. And, uh, and he gave me, I mean, I was a poor kid from Wyoming. He gave me like, you know, a few bikes and some wetsuits. And like, I thought I would like, you know, had entered triathlon heaven and uh, he kind of took me under his wing and, really helped me out. And I mean, by 97, then I was, I was, I'd kind of jumped directly into the pro ranks and started racing at that point. And then fast forward a few years and you were on that very first US triathlon team in the Olympics of Sydney, the Sydney games. So tell us a little bit about that because that must've been very cool. First time triathlons in the Olympics and you're there. Yeah. It's one of those moments that like when you're there, you realize the enormity of it but I really at the time I was like I think I'll understand the significance like 20 years from now so it's about right now that I'm like oh yeah that was pretty cool being a part of that and everything but it was such a great experience I mean Australia 
you know, I mean, triathlon mad country. So, you know, the women raced on day one, the men raced on day two, you know, it was really like a highlight of the Olympic games for them. And I mean, kind of for the entire Olympics and I'm, it, I mean, I'm biased, but, uh, I think, I mean, what a great place to, to be in the Olympics for triathlon because for it sure. is just such a big sport there and everything. And, you know, the backdrop was amazing as well. It's the Sydney opera house and, you know, transition areas in front of that. You swam in Sydney Harbor. And I mean, yeah. it was, it was, I mean, it's kind of everything, you know, you would expect and everything, but I, I, you know, I did, I was coached by Joe Friel and mm-hmm. Joe uh, started coaching me basically right away in 1997. I needed guidance in a big way. Um, you know, I was coming off of a running career and, uh, and Joe is an expert, definitely in, in triathlon, all things triathlon, but you know, with cycling, and that's probably where I was the most naive for sure. And right. um, and so he kind of took me under his wing. But in 2000, after the Olympics, like we we actually sat down and he said, you know, do you want to go for another four years and go for Athens, or, or are you thinking about long course? And um, and we both kind of felt physiologically that I was a better long course potential athlete. So. Um, just kind of decided to hang up the ITU shoes then and like put on the long course hat and, uh, and go from there. So, yeah. And, uh, um, and I raced for about four more years after that with, you know, moderate success. Um, you know, I won some good races and everything, but I really, I mean, it was relatively early in my career. And especially if you look at some of the guys who I was racing with, I mean, some of those guys are still racing impressively actually. And, uh, and, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of hung it up relatively early. I was just, uh, I, I felt like I wanted more, I needed more, uh, like stimulus. I mean, I just think I'd been doing it for a really long time. And mm-hmm. with Joe Friel being, you know, kind of my mentor and my coach for that eight year period, he, he also kind of encouraged me to get into coaching and that's how I got involved. Actually, I, I went to graduate school immediately, um, when I quit racing triathlon, and, uh, and I got my graduate degree in basically like a more advanced, like exercise science. It's like a human nutrition metabolism mm-hmm. type degree. And, um, and I kind of instantly started coaching then. And that was 06 when I finished graduate school. Right. And, um, yeah, and I built it up since then. Well, you stole my next question right out of, right, right <laughs> out of my mouth, because I was going to ask if having had a coach like Joe Friel would have then, uh, inspired you or you know led you into the coaching path because that seems like you know he's such an iconic coach one of those coaches who really you know I think any triathlete worth their salt has read has read his books um so did that did that coaching did that segue into coaching come naturally to you or was it something that you thought about for a long time or you know I didn't really. It's kind of interesting. It just like it was very serendipitous, you know, and I mean, obviously knowing him and uh, being mentored by him and Joe, I mean, he's a teacher, you know, I kind of like think of him as almost like a professor and I'm still really close with him now and we still talk now and he still, you know, comes to our coaches meetings with our group and our coaching group. And, um, and like, you know, I'm I'm still, I, I reach out to him for advice and everything all the time, but I don't know, and you'd have to ask him this, and I've honestly never asked him this, if he was like kind of mentoring me to be in that role, maybe when, even when yeah. I was an athlete. But uh, like I said, it was it was a fortunate like uh, relationship. And, and I mean, and it continues to be like in that way, because even though he doesn't coach anymore, he's still you know involved in the sport. But mm-hmm. 
uh, like I said, he's still a mentor to me and, and, and he'll, you know, anytime I reach out to him, he's immediately available and, and super helpful, you know, along those lines. And, and, uh, and I feel like he's just one of, you know, also a handful of like coaches basically that I've had in my life that have happened to be incredible, like mentors that, you know, because mm-hmm. people always ask, what's your training philosophy, you know, and it's like, you know, some people have this like one specific answer and I'm like, well, ultimately it's a hodgepodge. And I mean, I think that's all great coaches is it's a hodgepodge of, you know, all this uh, information and experience that you've had over, over years and years and years. And, yep. you know, there's like, uh, and, and I mean, there's certainly certain specific philosophies that I follow, but, um, it's also a lot of like learning and it's constantly changing as well. Right. Yeah. As you learn and meet and grow and incorporate other people's philosophies into your own I think that's yeah, prob- that's probably what some of the greatest coaches do is they're not afraid to blend and blend and learn as they as they grow and evolve type thing right totally no yeah that's a huge part of it absolutely yeah I'm always keeping my eyes out for new stuff but I in fact I mean I'm always learning stuff from my athletes as well right you know I mean they teach you a lot working with the East Africans you know, over the past, whatever, 12 years has taught me so much because of the type of athletes that they are both physiologically, but also psychologically and the way that they treat sport and the way that they treat recovery and, uh, you know, the way that they treat hard sessions, et cetera. I mean, that it's been valuable, super valuable, but I would say every athlete I work with from age groupers to professionals, you learn, you know, some athletes you learn this much from some athletes you learn this much from. And right. I mean, and some of it's like incredibly valuable and you can take away, but I, I would say that, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ever evolving process and you have to, you know, and, uh, and take on, on top of that is just science and, you know, literature and reading that and, you know, what's coming out of that and, you know, what's the latest, greatest studies are happening and staying on top of that. It's kind of, it's, I think that's part of the thing that makes coaching fun. It's, it's ever evolving and uh, and it's kind of an infinite amount of knowledge for sure. Yeah, and you're quite uniquely positioned in that you ha- you coach a group of elite runners, but you also coach uh, elite and age group triathletes. So tell us a little bit about your coaching setup and, and what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So I do have I have some professional runners who primarily in that group used to be almost exclusively East Africans, which is like I said, it's a whole. Um, it's a whole different, like almost mentality to training. And of course I've adopted some of their stuff to accommodate them and, and they've adopted a lot of my stuff, I would say. Plus I have my professional triathletes that I work with. And then, um, and then I have, you know, my, a handful of age groupers and I also have a coaching group. We have about 15 coaches in the coaching group that coaches age groupers. And those coaches are worldwide and our, our age groupers are worldwide as well. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun uh, it's a pretty fun setup, but it also keeps me pretty crazy busy for sure. Yeah. yeah. And you were saying you also have res- roles and responsibilities with USAT, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm the high performance performance advisor. That's my technical title with USA triathlon. So I work with all of our national team athletes and with their coaches and with the staff for everything Olympic related. So um, you know, I'm on most of the WTS circuit, although this year that circuit has been nil, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but still, so traveling to those races as well and working with those athletes as well, which is so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I really love that position. I enjoy that position. I'd actually been away from, well, not completely, um, and exclusively, but not super involved with like the whole ITU, 
um, system for a while. And now I'm like, you know, kind of smack in the middle of that again as, as well. So um, yeah, it's, it's busy, a lot of travel, but I love that. You know what I mean? I'm basically, I'm at races almost all, you know, every weekend and or with athletes. So yeah. Well, when we have, when we had races, <laughs> when we had races, exactly. Yeah. 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 So among the many uh, hats that you wear, you've also, you're also a co-author of the Guide to Sprint and Olympic Triathlon Racing, which you wrote with uh, Chris Foster, our senior editor here at Triathlete Magazine. So I know you contributed a lot of the training plans and collaborated with Chris on that book. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Chris, uh, he came to me, you know, I've collaborated with him like on different things for Triathlete like over the years. And he came to me and said, hey, you know, I really feel like triathlon right now is getting the pendulum is swinging, you know, even more so again toward like Olympic and sprint distance racing. And there's tons of interest, the Olympics and mixed relay and just the accessibility of that type of racing. You know, Ironman, you can do, you know, a couple a year and it takes a lot of training and everything. And I think a lot of people like who maybe got into the sport that were doing that um, you know, are starting to be like, oh, well, I can, you know, pop in these sprints and Olympic distance races more often. It doesn't take as much time. Um, so it's becoming more and more popular again. I mean, when I was young and started triathlon, like Olympic distance racing was huge, you know? Yes. And, uh, and so I think, and Chris said, you know, I want to write a book. I want to write a book about, you know, like about Olympic and sprint distance racing and talk about the history of the sport and, you know, talk more specifically about that type of training. He was like, would you be willing to contribute? And I, I said, for sure. And it was a really, it was a fun project because for me, it made me revisit like some of my past and history. And it's been fun to read the book because, I mean, it's educated me on like some of, because that was a lot of Chris's contributions, you know, like where the sport came from and how it evolved and where we are now, but, and then it does go into specifics and the, what I contributed to is, you know, training plans and training plans for like Olympic and sprint distance racing. And, um, and it also talks about what I think a couple of things that the book covers that is unique is, you know, that it, it talks about like recovery periods. It talks about cross training activities. It talks about what you should do if you miss training. And I think that's a problem sometimes when you're just following a training plan is what happens if you miss a day? What happens if you miss a week? What happens if you miss three weeks? And he addresses that all in the book so that you can actually read the book, take a look at it, follow one of the training plans and, uh, and hopefully sex, uh, successfully, you know, execute a race. So, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun book. It was a fun project. It was a lot of time, way harder than I thought it would be, yes. but Chris is brilliant. So I'm happy to have worked with him on it. <laughs> Very cool. So you're obviously, yeah, so you're obviously in contact and have a lot of different coach athlete relationships and in your experience so far, what, what makes a good coach, but what makes a good coach athlete relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, communication communicators, good communicators. I would Mm -hmm. say that's a huge, huge part of what makes a good coach. And I mean, good coaches that I know are curious and I think you know, inquisitive, ask questions, but, uh, uh, you know, and stay on top of the latest, greatest. But I would say probably more important than that, it's kind of like any profession in life, I would say, is like the really great coaches that I meet, they're, 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 they understand people and they understand relationships and they can look at two different athletes and almost like innately know what, you know, that athlete needs that's different from another athlete. And I'm not talking about 
you know, what you can read in a book. I'm talking about mm-hmm. like the art side of things, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a big, big part of it because it's easy to read books. It's easy to spout numbers and talk about data and, you know, your watts need to be this and all that type of stuff. But I really think that like the great, a really great coach, especially in the sport of triathlon is a coach who can look at a specific athlete and understand exactly what they need. And then in basically, you know, work with that, with that a- athlete. And with pros, I would say too, is they're so individual, you know, from a personality standpoint, but also from a physiology standpoint. So like, uh, you know, managing that and understanding how to manage that is like, uh, is, is kind of the trick and the key. I mean, all of my pros are incredibly different people and, and honestly, they, they all are on slightly different plans and programs because of that, because what they thrive off and what they thrive off, like I said, both psychologically, mentally, but also what they thrive off physically. And that's why also kind of going back to that, sometimes people say, well, what's your training philosophy? And I'm like, well, I have these philosophies for sure, but there's, it's so individualized, you know, and, and yep. it's very, it's very different from person to person for sure. Yeah. Because I've read some, uh, I've read an interview with you where you were talking about how important devices and data is, but up to a point. And at what point do we need to, as a good coach, how do you help educate and manage an athlete teaching them when devices and data is important and when intuition biofeedback and learning to listen to your own body is important and I'm sure that that's with with the different athletes that you're working with I'm sure you see that in a variety of forms you know I'm thinking (laughs) of a guy like Sam Long versus an athlete like Ben Hoffman or Heather Jackson you know I'm sure that plays out in a myriad of ways right and how do you, Absolutely. yeah, how, talk to us about that and the, and that, and that constant play playoff between or that constant trade-off between data versus intuition, you know, cause that's a, right. that's a massive so, part of training and recovery too, right? Yeah. Well, data can become a crutch for sure. Mm-hmm. And I see some people really leaning on it. You know what I mean? Well, you know, the run split said this and, you know, the bike split said this and it's like it did. But at the end of the day, your guy got 58th place and not second place. So I don't care what that data says. Like, you know what I mean? The most important data is like what happened. But I also think data can become a crutch for athletes. And and as coaches, like a good thing to teach athletes or to not like to understand the data and understand how it's useful and powerful, but also to not completely rely on it. You know, and I, a good example is you know, an age grouper who's doing an Ironman race and they're targeting a specific power range on the bike, but it's extra hot that day, or they're just not feeling good or whatever. And, you know, they're like, well, you know, 40 miles into the 112 miles, I started feeling horrible. And, and, uh, you know, and I started puking and, you know, this type of thing, but you said, you know, you have to push that one power number. And, you know, it's like, well, it's great if you can become, and I'm a big believer in this, this, like from a coach is, creating an athlete who becomes less and less and less reliant on you. If that makes sense. Like some coaches, like I feel like they create these relationships where the athletes become more and more and more reliant on, on their coach. And my, I kind of have the opposite philosophy. And I think a lot of coaches do is like, I want to give them the information and the power and the knowledge and the intuition, their personal intuition and teaching them how to do that so that, like, I don't like, you know, I could be 2000 miles away. And they're, yeah. they, they're on the starting line, completely confident and completely ready to go. And, uh, and me as a coach, knowing that I'm completely confident, knowing that like, you know, that they're you know ready to go too without that. So, I mean, that's a big part of it. But like you say, 
I think age has a lot to do with that personality, like it has mm-hmm. a lot to do with that. You know, you mentioned, you know, like Ben um, Hoffman and Sam Long. I mean, those two guys, um, you know, they're it's funny because they get along. Um, they're good friends. Yeah. And uh, but they're very different people for sure. And what yeah. Ben has that Sam doesn't have is Ben has, you know, whatever, 15 years of experience as a professional triathlete. He knows himself incredibly well. Um, you know, he knows his body incredibly well. And also he's at a completely different, you know, stage kind of in his career. Yes. And, uh, so with Ben, you know, what we work on are different things than with Sam, you know, Sam's still a young kid. Like I, I, I describe Sam as he's like a black lab puppy. You know what I mean? He's just kind of <laughs> like smiling <He laughs> and is. wagging oh my goodness, yeah. over and, um, and, you know, and that's a fantastic thing about Sam, but he also, he's learning. It's interesting for me because like, you know, I'm watching him learn and I forget, oh, well, I need to, you know, t- help him with this, whatever idea concept, because, you know, this is a new, new process for him. But mm-hmm. I also think, that, you know, even this year has been such a crazy year and goofy year with racing. And, you know, looking once again at like Ben and Sam, Ben's incredibly established, you know, he has great sponsors. He has, you know, a big following on social media, you know, and he just had a baby um, right before Kona this past year. And so like, he's at a very different stage in his life. So when COVID hit this year, you know, sitting down with Ben, and it's like, well, what do we want to accomplish here? You know, and for him, he's like, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to plug in and charge the batteries and get ready for when I really need to race and everything. My sponsors are happy. I'm happy. I get to spend more time with my wife and my kid and all that stuff. So it's like, great, we're going with that game plan, you know, and put, yes. put you in a mode where when we need to push the on button, we can push the on button, but we don't need to. Whereas Sam, he's 23 years old, <laughs> you know, and and he just started, you know, last year was like a breakthrough year yes. for him. You know, yeah. he won 70.3s, he won an Ironman. People are just getting to know who he is. So, and he's got energy, you know, like, you know, You're going not kidding. Through, I, I see that yeah, guy so, at the pool. I see him all over Boulder, that guy. He is just, and every time you open Strava, he's got a new KOM. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's what, so his approach this year is completely different from Ben's, you yeah. know, and I mean, this is, shows how individual athletes are different. I'm like, and Sam, I mean, he's created in a year of no racing, racing he's created a, a much, like way more people are aware of who he is. He, yeah. he has accomplished, he's kept that momentum going in such a great way. Like I said, he's got KOMs, he's both on running and, and cycling. And, you know, he's always doing something and, you know, we're always kind of planning the next like goal and adventure. That's a carrot for him, you know, to chase after, because once again, he's like, he's completely developing, you know, in front of mm-hmm. our eyes right now. And I think it's been an incredibly valuable year for him in that way. And, uh, and the other thing about him is, and this is where I just check in with him the entire time. You're feeling okay with this. You know, you're, you're okay. Right. If we had to race in a month, you'd be ready to push that race button. And of course his answer is absolutely. Yes. So, um, you know, so totally different approach two different athletes, two completely different approaches, but it's because of where they are in their careers. And, um, you know, and all of that. So yeah. And it's been incredibly valuable for both of them. Yeah. I mean, it's been a powerful year for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about how both of those, both of those athletes and Heather Jackson too, they've, they've all really since working with you have really turned around there or, or stepped up their running game. I think, you know, Hmm. look, look at Sam and look at definitely Ben last year, his Kona run split was very close to being the fastest if 
it was he like second fastest to Yan, I think, right? And um, yeah, twenty seconds behind uh, Ferdinand's split, yeah, which is yeah. awesome, yeah. And then his split in his run split in Iman was it Iman Florida a few a yeah. few weeks after that. That was phenomenal. And then Sam too, you know, a guy who is obviously a bike, you know, born a born bike rider, right? You see that guy riding a bike, and it's just like, okay, yeah. Right. He's a natural, um, yeah. But uh, as a runner, he, I mean, I I know he he's acknowledged probably. 18 months ago, oh yeah, I, I need to improve my run. And then just a few weeks ago, he crushes his KOM in Boulder, which is, you know, I mean, the, I know it's Strava, I know it's KOMs, but like some of the, some of the runners on that, um, on that top 10 for that KOM, legit runners. And he, and I, right. uh, was it a 15 mile, was it Magnolia Road, 15 mile? Yeah, Magnolia. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because, so the Magnolia attempt, it was fun because, um, I don't know, like six weeks ago, one of the ITU athletes did it. Who's a, who's a good runner. And then, um, and Sam's like, Hey, you know, I think I could do that. I've been up there. And I mean, I know personally, I know Magnolia. Well, yeah. you probably, yeah, Magnolia I well. <laughs> and I was like, no, that would totally be sweet. I'm like, I mean, that's an iconic, you know, yes. running route. It's high. It's like 7,000 feet. It's hilly. It's hard. And, um, and so about, so we set it up and I said, no, that's a great goal to go for. Sam was running really well. And I think that's an interesting thing about Sam this year is early on, people were seeing him set these, uh, Strava KOMs in cycling. But I knew personally, I knew, and especially early in the year, we were really working on his swim and, um, and we were really working on his run. So these Strava bike KOMs were just kind of like coming without too much bike focus, which is interesting. You know what I mean? He's just becoming a stronger athlete, you know, in in front of my eyes. Like sometimes, you know, I was surprised with what he was doing on the bike because I knew what he was doing in the water and on the run was what was really impressive. So when that Magnolia one came up, the thing is, is about five days before he was at an attempt it and we had it on the schedule and we weren't like resting for these things, but you know, we're kind of like training through them. But anyway, uh, a, a real a runner and I wouldn't say a real runner but like you know a pure runner Tyler McCandless like got the KOM and uh, I was like oof you know and it was a couple minutes faster than the other one and I was like that guy's a legit runner you know he's you know he's he, he's like <laughs> and and Sam's like you know kind of Sam he's like okay cool well I'll still go for it and I was like well fantastic <laughs> let's go for it and then he just he just crushed it yeah he totally yeah. crushed it. even surprising me and I think someone wrote on his Instagram thing, they're like, you know, uh, I want to know what Ryan's, you know, prediction is for his time. And admittedly, I would not have, I would not have guessed what he posted. Yeah. Like, 115, yeah, I mean, he, he right? surprised me a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So he's running, you know, at this really, I mean, and, and pretty incredible pace for, for that altitude on that stuff. So to me, it's great validation that his running is truly coming around. And he looks and I, I, I he looks like a different runner now. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've worked on technique, we've worked on form, we've worked on cadence. He's a tall guy, you know, he has a tendency to lope along and he's he's really kind of tightened that up and um, you know, and that's improved. And yeah, for sure. And you mentioned Heather too, and I know Heather Heather is like taking more of a like Ben approach this year, Ben Hoffman mm-hmm. approach, because once again, she's very established and yeah. You know, she doesn't have anything to prove by, you know, getting KOMs this year or anything yeah. like that. You know, if she wanted to go get them, she probably could. But, yeah. you know, but she's more concerned about, you know, in, you know winning Kona in February. So, mm-hmm. um, but so we've been working on those things with her too. And like, you know, once again, I'm really happy with how she's come along. Heather, 
has treated the year more like in a way that you would think that H.J. would is, I mean, they, she's been going on epic adventures, and, you know, and, you know, like bikepacking trips and stuff while also getting in her training. But man, I know she's chomping at the bit to race as well. I think all these guys are, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And so what does the, so staying on the running theme, yeah, the, yeah. the runners that you work with, the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, what... What is there that you take from working with them that you apply, or if, if there is anything, that you apply to triathlon and and specifically to some of these pro triathletes that you've really helped improve their run? You know, what, what is it that's helped bring Sam along or, right, yeah. or Ben along or Heather along? Or, right. you know, is there anything that you learn from those pure runners, what I would call pure runners? And uh, and, and, and what, are, what are your age group triathletes learn? How do they improve as runners? Right, totally. You know... I think a lot of it is um, really becoming efficient and teaching them to become efficient, teaching them how to recover properly, you know, while running. But it's also just like, I mean, you know, it's kind of like coaching 101 stuff. It's like, you know, very specific workouts that I feel like are, you know, kind of key fundamental workouts. And I think with triathletes and in in particular, um, like Ironman athletes, uh, like, it's, it's such a strength oriented run, you know, like a lot of people think about, you know, the speed and all of that. And in ITU racing, it's no doubt a speed event. It's still a strength event there as well. But in an Ironman, it's really a strong runner. I think it's, you know, why, like historically you've seen some of the, like, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, more runner types, sometimes an Ironman not translate as well, you know, for, for Mm -hmm. Dano, it has, but also it, when they bike, and especially the way that those guys are biking now, and especially on a year in Kona we're talking about, especially a year where the conditions are tough, um, you know, it's, it's a full-on you know, strength run. Sure, you've got to be fast. And when these guys are running 240 off the bike in Kona or you know, even below, I mean, that's, that's fast for yeah. sure. But it's still more of a strength-oriented you know, run than anything mm-hmm. because those guys are capable of running you know, significantly faster than that. Um, you know, without the bike or, you know, at least percentage points for sure. But I would say, you know, like the difference or what I've taken away from the training is really, it's just the, you know, kind of the pasta trick, you know, cooking it and throwing it on the wall and seeing if it sticks and if it sticks, then okay, that, you know, that works. And I've really found, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do with elite marathoners really does translate pretty directly, um, to, to, you know, to the triathletes. Um, you know, volume is sometimes different, uh, you know, pace zones are different because in a good example there is, you know, as an elite marathoner, you can run them, you can train them at, uh, you know, more race specific paces. And, uh, whereas triathletes, you know, if I say, Hey, go run a marathon or go run, you know, a tempo run at marathon, Ironman marathon pace, like Mm -hmm. some of them that may feel kind of easy, kind of light because, um, you know, because they're, they hadn't just swam a bunch and, and, you know, ridden 180 K as well. So, so the paces we pushed down a little bit more. One interesting thing that we found in, um, my woman who, uh, my elite Kenyan woman who Caroline Rowe teacher won the Boston marathon, her and Ben Hoffman and now Sam and now Heather, all those guys, they train with her and, um, and guys for the guys, it's funny because, it's a very close equivalent. I would say a female, a top 
female marathon runner in the world is very equivalent to the top male triathlete runners. Interesting. And, uh, yep. yeah, and they beat each other up. And it, I mean, to the point where like, if one of them, you know, I've seen one of them slightly fitter than the other one. And, you know, the one has the one on the ropes and then, you know, the, mm -hmm. like whatever, three months later, those tables will turn because of race season or whatever. And the other one has the other one on the ropes. So it's kind of interesting. And it's also got to the point where they like, you know, uh, you know, the guys will be like, you know, is Caro fit right now? Because if she's not, I want to run with her because I need to get her back <laughs> for that last time when we ran together because yeah, so it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. And I mean, having those guys train together is, is actually, um, a neat thing too. So, yeah. Yeah. So you train, how often do you all train together? Cause are you all geographically located in the same place? No, you know, so I'm based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I spend a lot of time in Crested Butte, Colorado. Um, in the wintertime, we always, my coaching group has uh, a house in Tucson, Arizona. Okay. So we're usually there for about four months. This winter, I had East Africans there. Sam was there. Heather was there. Ben was there. You know, um, Ben and Heather actually have houses there. Sam now, because I'm there in the wintertime, has been spending the winters there. Um, which is fantastic. But even in the summer, um, like even in, in Crested Butte this summer, Ben was just with me um, mm -hmm. and uh, and Heather's coming next week. <laughs> and uh, and Sam's parents actually have a place in Crested Butte. So right. Sam is like in and out all the time. So it's kind of just serendipitously we all like uh, connect and, you know, at different times. But I mean, that's important for me, though, too, with elites. If you don't have like a daily training environment, which is not su super common, as you know, with Ironman, you know, type people. Um, and for me, it's not a necessity at all. Like, I feel like one kind of attribute that a lot of the athletes that I work with, especially my pros is they're pretty independent people. You know what I mean? They don't, mm -hmm. they don't want a daily training environment and everything. So, um, they, uh, like it, it, it works nicely that like I can bop around or they can bop around and be with me. So yeah, this year, once again, it's been a weird year, but fortunately, like I got to spend time with all of them and, you know, uh, whatever from January to mid March in Tucson. And now we're just connecting when we can, cause there was a, a point this year too, where all of them wanted to be responsible too. And it's not like, I'm not driving around the country and meeting right. up with people, right. hanging out with people. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And how about, I mean, like, like you mentioned, it's been a funky, weird year. Um, we, at the moment we have Kona on the schedule for next February. How, how are you going to help, you know, guide your athletes towards training through the winter for Kona in February? Is that something you've, you've got a number of plans or, or, and also I think this is probably a question that most triathletes are thinking about right now is like, how do you, how, how should we train through the winter? You know, should we be expecting races to pop up in? February, March, and be ready to, you know, approach the off season differently. Like, how are you guiding people in that respect? Yeah. Well, I would say in two ways, once individual by individual, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause, you know, some athletes are like, so they're just chomping at the bit and they want to be like, you know, on a dime ready to race tomorrow if they have to. Whereas, you know, others, and I have, and I guess like general philosophy, especially with age groupers, if I, if I've told them, I'm like, you know, I wouldn't, you don't need to plan to race this year because mm. I think especially experienced athletes, they know the amount of energy that it takes, you know, and the amount of training that it takes to get really, really fit for a race. And I, I tell them, I'm like, you know what kind of energy that is, both mental and physical commitment. Right. And if putting in that amount of energy to get 
to have a race canceled. It sounds like a bad idea, which it does to a lot of people. I'm like, let's not plan on it. You know, it's none of this stuff is going anywhere. It's a bummer that we can't race. But, you know, if you can't do whatever Ironman Louisville this year, then then, you know, the world's not coming to an end. And I definitely don't want you to burn tons of matches trying to get there only for it to be canceled. So, you know, I've kind of given people more like leverage that way. As far as the pros go, um, you know, in Kona in February, like until we hear differently, I would say that's where people's schedules are really, you know, focused on at this point. Um, You know, if we can hit some things and once again, it's individual, you know, along the way, but it is going to be a really different winter than normal because, I mean, most people aren't planning for a key race to be happening in February. And this year, that is the case for the Ironman athletes, of course. So um, it's going to look very differently than normal. You know, normally December is, uh, you know, for a lot of the pros is kind of like sit back and drink beer and not do much, you know, right. month and everything. And, and, and this year it's going to be like, you're going to be putting in some pretty big volume and everything. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, being in a specific spot. And I mean, even me as a coach, like I plan, like normally, like I said, we get the Tucson house, like in, in, you know, kind of a little bit deeper into the winter. And this year we're getting it earlier than ever, because I know that I'm going to be there, you know, like, uh, and doing some pretty extensive training in January this year. For sure, right. you know. Yeah, so the yeah. key, because normally, like, your Kona build would be what, July, August, August, September. So instead it would be, you're, you're probably looking at Thanksgiving through through January, I guess, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Those are going to be the really, really big monster months. And um, so, uh, yeah, and and I would say that, you know, the athletes I work with, we were, were, like, mentally preparing for that and everything. And I guess I also feel like, and I'm hoping, and I mean, I guess we're all hoping this, that, like, by the time we were to get to that point of having to put in the really big energy and effort, um, we'll know, we'll have a more clear, uh, you know, message on whether, you know, Kona in February is a, a reality, you know? And, um, I, I, I mean, I, I keep on hoping for more and more transparency, but it's not always there. So, but I mean, we, we just plan with, you know, what we can at the moment and, uh, and that, so, Yeah. Yes, it's going to be an interesting few months ahead, that's for sure. No, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, it, I mean, you know, athletes athletes are athletes. People do this sport because they're competitive and whether age groupers or professionals, you know, people really badly want to race, of course. Mm. But I think that at this point, like people are also very reasonable with their expectations of how, you know, safe that would be or possible that would be too. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen many athletes or have you encouraged athletes to really get back into tune with why they're racing or why they're doing the sport? You know, take, Very much. Strip, strip away racing, you know, and it's, and you're left with the question of why, why are you doing this? Exactly. It's huge. It's huge. And it's funny because even me, like, I mean, I haven't raced in forever and ever and ever, but, and so for me, like, I mean, I still swim and bike, like, fairly often. And the reason why is just because I love this stuff. You know what I mean? Like you said, I mean, I always say this, if I wouldn't have been a professional triathlete, I probably still would have been swimming, biking and running every day. And now that I'm not, I still do it, you know, like on a pretty regular basis. And when I'm 80 years old, I hope that I will be as well, you know, and it has been interesting for me to see, you know, how people, I've had that conversation with a lot of people and especially age groupers as you know, when they're like, uh, you know, I'm struggling with motivation right now. And I'm like, okay, 
And I'm like, I understand because there's not a race on the schedule. I was like, but, you know, but why do you do this sport? And they're like, well, this is my hobby. And I'm like, it is your hobby, you know, and do you enjoy cycling? Oh, I love it. I can't live without it, you know, or, you know, do you enjoy swimming? Oh yeah, totally. Do you enjoy running? And it, it has, it's kind of brought up these conversations where people have, they've kind of stepped back and they've been like, oh, I don't need a race because this stuff is important to me. You know, we don't need to be on as structured of a schedule or doing these specific intervals, but, you know, kind of like having the luxury. And I think a lot of people have looked at it that way. They're like, wow, I'm a pretty lucky person. Like, you know, I'm involved in, you know, the sport that keeps me healthy and fit and, you know, mentally healthy and all of that stuff that they have kind of like looked at it and been like, you know, racing's great and I love to compete, but I also just love being an athlete, you know? And yep. I think it has made a lot of people really look at that because people can get so caught up in the race thing, like you said, but it has made a lot of people kind of like take a step back. And, uh, and I would say I've only had a couple of people who have taken that step back and been like, no, like I, I need racing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, oh. you know? Yeah, you know, but but most almost everyone, it's like been almost like a, a powerful experience, I would say, you know, more like empowering. And it does. It gets you kind of back to the roots. And it brings me I had a pro East African runner um, miss a race opportunity because of a, a visa. You know, sometimes they can't get their visas mm -hmm. and they were super ready for the race and super fit. And it was supposed to actually be in Europe. And um, they were stuck in the United States. And instead uh, like, that's what I said. I was like, you know, we're training so hard. I was like the next couple of weeks, I just want you to, you know, like you, you can't go to this race that you're really fit for. I just want you to go out and run and enjoy it because it's often pros, especially, you know, they don't do that. And, uh, it was such a powerful experience for that person. I mean, I learned that whatever, 10 years ago, cause they came back after that two weeks and were like, you know, I know that this is my job and you know, it's important. It's how I feed my family. It's how I feed my family back in Africa, even, but they're like, but I just love this, you know, and that's having that non-structure and non-race, you know, just like falling back in love with running again was important to them. And I think it was a, like, I guess I was proud of myself as a coach to like take all of that pressure off of them and tell them, you know, to just go run in the mountains for multiple days. And, yeah. you know, cause that's huge. Same happens at every level, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Very cool. Ryan, thank you very much for your time today. That's about all we got time for, but we hugely appreciate it. And uh, yeah, lots of, lots of very cool information there. Thank you for joining us and uh, good luck to you and your athletes for the rest of the season. No, thanks. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Coach Ryan, for joining us for Fitter and Faster. We'll be back in two weeks when we chat with ultra runner Dean Carnassus. Until then, happy training.